get a job. It sounds like Paul just told those in the church of Thessalonica that they need to get a job. I've had Christians, really good and faithful, well-meaning Christians, ask me, based on this particular passage, if this isn't the way that we ought to respond to those we encounter who are homeless or who are hungry, people who are seeking help, maybe through our social safety nets, like unemployment and food stamps and Medicaid. No. This isn't the approach that we take toward people who are struggling because of financial hardship. We don't tell people who don't have homes or who are struggling to feed their children or provide for them the medical attention that they need to get a job. Get a job is not the Christian response to people who are suffering, who are suffering poverty, oftentimes for reasons that we may have no idea about, Maybe they have suffered some debilitating illness or injury, or maybe they have experienced chronic um, unemployment or underemployment, or maybe it's because wages are just so darned low, or because they've outlived their savings. There are so many reasons that people live in poverty or don't have homes, and in the majority of cases, it really has very little to do with being lazy or feeling a sense of entitlement. When we say to people, get a job, nine times out of ten, we're revealing a whole lot more about who we are than about who the people are that we might say this to. We're revealing our lack of compassion, our tendency to make hasty judgments. Maybe we're revealing our lack of willingness to help. I don't know about y'all, but when I read the Gospels and I watch Jesus' life and ministry and I see him encounter people who are sick or who are hungry or who are hurting, who are socially isolated or ostracized, I don't ever see him telling people to get a job. That's not the Gospel message. It's week four of our five-week sermon series, Half-Truths, and our half-truth this week is... God helps those who help themselves. It's a saying that sounds really true, and there's a lot of people who believe that this is actually in the Bible. During one of Jay Leno's famous jaywalking segments in during The Tonight Show, he walked along the streets of New York and he asked people if they could name the Ten Commandments. Many of the people who responded thought that one of the Ten Commandments was, God helps those who help themselves. Barna Group, it's a leading research group in the United States, and they focus on the intersection of faith and culture. They've been around for more than 30 years, and they have done millions of interviews with people about their understanding of faith. And they found that 8 out of 10 people think that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It's not. It is not in the Bible. In fact, it seems to have predated the Bible by five or six hundred years. It originated as early as the fifth, sixth, or some would even say the seventh century BCE. There are many of Aesop's fables that illustrate the idea, and there are variants of this particular phrase that are found in some ancient Greek tragedies. 
and it's been echoed over the years by various philosophers. And in 1736, this is probably how we ended up becoming so familiar with it. Ben Franklin popularized it when he used this phrase in a publication that was very widely read called Poor Richard's Almanac. And there is a sense in which it captures a bit of biblical teaching, but overall it's so contrary to the central theme of the Bible that Adam Hamilton in his work says that this is less than a half-truth, it's more like a third truth. Now, don't get me wrong, we are expected to do our part. My spiritual director, she tells me quite often, actually, have faith, Tracy, and tie up your camel. I mean, I can pray for weight loss all I want, and I have. But my experience has shown so far that if I continue to eat when I'm not hungry, and if I continue to overeat when I am hungry, and if I continue to choose foods that are high in sugar and fat and calories and carbohydrates, all the foods that I love so much, it is not going to happen. I mean, if I'm unwilling to do my part, what I'm really praying for is that God would suspend the laws of nature and somehow redesign my body chemistry so that I would have some advantage over the rest of y'all. Actually, it would be okay with me if the rules applied to all of us. I would love, I'm expecting God to change everything so that I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and remain fit and trim and healthy. Now, I won't lie to you, I do hold out hope that that's the way heaven is. (laughs) But it is not the case in this lifetime. What I can do is I can pray that God would give me the willingness and the guidance and the wisdom and the good judgment and the support and the strength that I need to make good choices. I can pray that God would free me from the need or the desire to eat when I'm not hungry, to eat when I'm sad or tired or angry. I can cry out to God, and I can trust that God will provide strength and guidance, a way out of temptation like Lisa talked about a couple of weeks ago. I can trust that God will provide those things. The Benedictine monks lived by a particular rule of life that was summed up in the motto, Ora et Labora. It's Latin for pray and work. The serenity prayer sums this up as well. American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this particular prayer, but its adoption in abbreviated form by Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs is how it's become most well-known these days. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. The idea that through prayer, God would guide and empower us to will and work for God's good pleasure is a promise that we receive in Philippians. In the Thessalonian church at the time that Paul wrote the words that I read earlier, this would appear to have been his approach. Yes, Paul said, 
trust God, and take action. I mean, do the things that you can actually do to contribute. Paul was talking to certain people in the church in Thessalonica, and he was telling some of those people to get a job, but he was talking to a very specific community in a very particular context that had a singular expectation. Those in the church there believed with everything in them that Christ would return at any moment. They expected that Christ would return in their lifetime for sure. But in their minds, I mean, it could be today. So some of them had decided that they didn't need to work anymore, that they didn't need to manage their money wisely, that they didn't need to take care of their homes. They actually believed that it was an act of faith to trust in Christ and his looming return by letting go of all worldly concerns and trusting that God would provide. But they were able-bodied people, and they could put food on their own tables. And, and I think this is what got Paul the most. The problem was that in their idleness, some of these same people, they were going around in the community just stirring up trouble. They were causing all kinds of problems. And the people in their community who were still working every day were growing a little weary of helping them out. So Paul tells them that they need to get to work. And this is the sense in which God helps those who help themselves expresses a little bit of biblical truth. However, as I mentioned before, there are times where people through no fault of their own, need help that they can't provide for themselves. And rather than take time to understand and extend compassion, we sometimes use the phrase, and probably not intentionally, but I think sometimes we can carelessly use this phrase as a means of getting out of our obligation to help other people. There's an overwhelming witness in the Bible that points to God's concern for the poor and the needy, for the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, the sick and the hungry. I mean, God, over and over again in Scripture, in our biblical witness, helps those specifically who cannot help themselves. Oftentimes working through you and me, God's people. I mean, we are God's instruments for change in the world. In in Leviticus 23.22, God commands the Israelites that when they harvest their land's produce, they are not to harvest all the way to the edges of their fields. God commands them to leave a portion so that the poor and the hungry and the immigrant can come along behind and gather up what's left. And God tells them to do this, he says specifically, as a sign to others that I am the Lord your God. I just love this. I love it because by leaving a part of their crop unharvested for those to come behind and gather, it allows them to gather up what remains. I mean, God had called the Israelites to a compassion and charity that also provided the poor and the immigrant with the dignity of being able to gather what they would eat. 
And it acknowledges that God is the ultimate source of all things. We are called to help those who cannot help themselves. We're called to be compassionate and merciful people and to honor and respect those who need our help, those who struggle. We're called to be kind, to protect the dignity of those who have need. We're called to pray and to seek God's guidance and how best to be God's instruments of mercy and justice. There are a lot of people all throughout history who have prayed and been moved through that prayer to take action for help with personal struggles, certainly, but also so that they might be used to change the world, to help others, to usher in justice and mercy. Adam Hamilton uses the example of Bloody Sunday. Some of you may remember that. In March, on March 7th of 1965 in Selma, Alabama, there was a march that was organized to protest the resistance to black voting. Over 600 marchers gathered together that morning first to worship and to pray together. And then, led and empowered by that prayer, they marched together. Their goal was to march all the way from Selma to Montgomery, but just short of the Edmund Pettus Bridge over the Alabama River, they were stopped by state troopers and local police who told them that they needed to turn around and go back home. Now, the people, as they approached that bridge, because they had been strengthened and empowered, and they felt called by God through prayer, with this community to stand up for the rights of those who did not have the right to vote at that particular time, they refused to turn back. They stood their ground. As a result, the police began to spray, um, oh, what do you call that? Tear gas. They shot tear gas into the crowd. And then many of them waded into the crowd and began to beat nonviolent protesters with billy clubs. Over 50 people ended up in the hospital as a result of that. Yet because faithful people in Alabama were through prayer, inspired, and armed with courage, and a passion for justice, our country experienced a turning point in the civil rights movement in 1965. The biblical witness repeatedly calls us to help those who can't help themselves. In the book of James, we're reminded that we're called to care for orphans and widows in their difficulty. Matthew 25, do y'all remember the sheep and the goats? To me, it's one of the most horrifying passages in Scripture. It's really scary. We're told in that passage that we will be judged based on our willingness or not to respond to the needs of those who are hungry and thirsty and naked, and sick, and in prison. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul insists that we are saved by faith, working through love. And the prophet Hosea, he suggests that compassion for others through acts of mercy is a preferred form of worship and obedience to God. God says through the prophet Hosea, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. 
our actual work to help others is more sacrificial, more real and tangible in terms of our expressions of faith than any form of ritual sacrifice. Showing compassion and mercy for those who struggle is central to the character of God. Ever since Hurricane Harvey and the resulting destruction, many people have been in prayer for those affected in their communities. I found out this past week, actually, when a group of us was in um, Kansas at Church of the Resurrection, that many people in their congregation have been praying for our area of the world. And as a result of that prayer, many people have been led to respond to help. Many of you, people here at Westlake United Methodist Church, have responded by donating money, by donating their time, their labor, for disaster relief, to put together flood buckets. Just last Sunday, this was the scene in our gym. Many, many faithful hearts and hands responding. And many have responded by going. This is just one portion of one team out of the three teams that have left from Westlake already to go and respond in Victoria to begin to clean up their homes and tarp their roofs to prepare them to begin to rebuild. Others in this church have helped and have responded by providing the food that the responders need. Those are the people we really love, right? The ones who feed us. There is another sense in which God helps those who cannot help themselves. Um, There is another sense in which God does help those who cannot help themselves. God is the God of hopeless causes. I mean, sometimes we have descended so deeply into sin and despair that it seems impossible. It is impossible many times for us to recover on our own. I mean, we mess things up so horribly sometimes. I've had the privilege of serving on a Kairos team. Kairos is a ministry that goes into prisons and ministers to those who've been incarcerated. And when I was there during the walk that I went on, I had the privilege of listening to the stories of many of the women who had been put in prison there. And their stories were tragic. It was so amazing to watch as they began to realize through the witness of all those people who were there, as they began to realize that God's love and grace was for them too, maybe especially. I mean, the tears just poured down their faces as their hearts broke open and they received the depth, depths of God's love for them. When we cry out and we, when we ask for God's grace, which by definition is the undeserved and unearned work of God in our lives, when we do that and when we realize God has been pursued, in pursuit of us all along, it is so powerful The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 10 that God specializes in helping those who can't help themselves. Listen to this. But you, God, do see, indeed you note trouble and grief, that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you 
You have been the helper of the orphan. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed. Over and over and over again in the Psalms, we witness those who cry out in despair and helplessness, beseeching God to save them. And over and over and over again, we watch as God lifts them up and sets them back on their feet. It's the essence of grace. And that's why God helps those who help themselves is antithetical to the biblical witness. God does help those who cannot help themselves. Sometimes we simply cannot save ourselves, no matter how hard we try. I have conversations with people all the time who are shattered because they've lost a job or their marriage is in trouble or they're having struggles with their kids. They have some health concern or financial hardship that's come up. People are just crushed in spirit and they're unable to stand on their own. Today is World Communion Sunday. That's why the table looks so beautiful. Has types of bread from all around the world because this is the day that we remember that we are all in communion with one another and with all God's people all around the world. It's the day that we remember that people who gather around this table, people who gather around tables that look like this all around the world, and especially those who don't gather at these tables because they've either been barred from the table or they don't trust the grace that they can receive at this table or maybe they don't know about it. This is the day we remember that we are all in communion with one another. I've heard that all evangelism is, all witnessing to God's love is, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Y'all, when it comes to God's grace, we are all beggars, every single one of us. When we come to this table later in the service, we all come with our hands open, turned upward and empty, because all we can do is receive that which we cannot do for ourselves. Amen.